Sire, it's so great that you finally made it here to Arrakis. I want to show you this amazing thing as you first walk up to your new home. Look, behold, it's the 20 date palms. They're sacred. Desert power. Uh, no. Actually, they're imported. Ah. They actually take a lot of resources to maintain. Uh, so more like desert power drain. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Now you're getting it. Very good. <laughs> and to your left, you'll see the native people of Arrakis. They're called the Fremen, and they're here to witness your inauguration. Desert power. Uh, no, they're uh, an autonomous group of people with their own needs and desires, not just a, a resource for you to tap into. But, um... They're quite crafty, and, uh, and they have a beautiful culture if you'd like to learn more. Desert people? That's closer. Yeah, 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 that's good. Hmm. Now, Sire, I have to talk to you about the spice. Spice is the essence of Arrakis. It is our most powerful resource. It is the lifeblood of our economy and a sacred material for the Fremen. Desert power? You know what? Yeah, actually, this is really just desert power. Desert power. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my spicy co-hosts. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> oh, because the spice. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Got it. Oh, good, good call, yeah. <laughs> and it's close to my heart because I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a space worm, a desert worm, a worm that lives in the desert, trying to get by, and, you know, sometimes... I uh, released some spice out of my glands, my spice glands. Does everyone have spice glands? I mean, I would assume, but I'm just a worm. What would I know? Fair enough. <laughs> what a beautiful, blessed creature. But That's who right. am I? But who am I? <laughs> who are you? I'm Jack Olander, an exceptionally testy date palm tree. Every day I grow bigger, faster than the rest of them, consuming more and more water. I'm trying to test the limits of how much they'll give me before they cut me down. Yes, you must beware the taller taller tree might get chopped. That's right. Right now I'm drinking water of up to 200 people a day. I know they're getting real pissy over there. You're, you're certainly living moss. That's right. <laughs> Maybe eventually you'll... Learn how to have roots that delve deep, and you can just tap into the water source deep underneath the dunes. That's true. And then they'll be giving me water I don't need. Did you say dunes? (sighs) Well, I think by now some of you have already heard that there's another voice in the room. Because we have a special guest patron who selected this movie that's going to introduce themselves right now. Hi, it's Casey, and I am a latex spider gimp 
<laughs> I can see that. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of my vibe. You have quite a badonk, I must say. <laughs> Thanks, I've been working on it. <laughs> I forgot such blessed creatures even existed. How could you forget? I don't know. <laughs> There is spice worm and there is latex spider. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two natives of Arrakis. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess the latex spider is uh Yeah, it's actually somewhere somewhere on else. Guidey Prime. Invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, humans are an invasive species on Arrakis. We heckin' are. <laughs> We're an invasive species on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. And you know, guys, like I mentioned, Casey's one of our patrons. And she's a producer level called Satirist Bloodline. Which means that you are a native species to the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so as uh, somebody in the producer tier, she was able to pick a movie that we were going to watch. She wrested control of movie selection from us. And (laughs) we decided that we would make this an entire month of Science fantasy films. Yes, in honor of Casey's choice. And I think this is a good one to choose if I do to my own horn. Um, just because Toot away. whenever I talk to people about this movie, it starts the conflict of like, is it science fiction or is it fantasy? Yeah. So, oh, we're going to get into that. Yeah, it straddles that line real good. Nice. But hey, if you want to be an awesome patron and pick movies like Casey gets to... You should head to patreon.com slash swords and satire and check out our different monthly membership tiers. Every tier gets the ability to vote on a movie we'll watch each month with a poll that we come up with. And uh, you can enjoy different episodes, bonus art at every tier. And if you become one of our producers, you get to pick movies every once in a while whenever we're like, hey, let's have somebody pick a movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very scientific system of whenever we think of it. Right. (laughs) And then we scramble to change our schedules around. (laughs) And you know, guys, we should probably give a special shout out to our newest patron. Yeah. Somebody who just signed up and joined the Swords and Satire family, Jeffrey H. Yeah, Jeffrey H. is pretty cool. What a slick pal. (laughs) Thank you so much for supporting the show. You're awesome. Yeah, it means a lot to us. It really helps us to keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. Is there like sci-fi torches in Dune or are they just like light bulbs? Laser torches. There we go. But okay, guys, enough celebrating our favorite people on the planet. We've got a movie to talk about, and that movie is Dune, the 1980s David Lynch classic. What? No. Oh, wait, no. Hold on. Let me check my notes here. The 2021 Denis Villeneuve modern classic. That's right. And it's just part one, by the way. That's right. I'm assuming there'll be a part two at some point in the near future. I really hope they already got the principal filming out of the way. And they're just working on post-production and delaying it or something because, I mean, if they have to still film it, it's going to be a while. I mean, I hear that filming on Arrakis is a little (laughs) expensive right now, so... Yeah. (laughs) So we've got a lot to say about this movie, but first, we should probably listen to Chelsea's very concise and well-prepared summary. That's right. (laughs) 
So actually, it is pretty concise, even though this is a long movie. It's actually pretty simple. Desert power. Yes. Yes. So I want to start by saying that um, this is basically an interstellar drug war film with political intrigue. Yeah. And uh, so we have House Atreides, and they lived in like a water forest biome. Ooh, that place was nice. They should just hang out there. Yeah. Caladan. Yeah, Caladan. Thank you. And they're gifted... With the spice planet, Arrakis, by the Galactic Emperor. But, you know, when is a gift not a gift? When it's not a fucking gift, it's an <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. When it's a and, setup. Yeah, when it's a setup. And Arrakis was formerly controlled by House Harkonnen, and it was taken away from them in a political maneuver. Taken away from them, or, in air quotes. Or was it, yes. Uh, so, but this is really a plot to take down House Atreides because the Emperor figured they would feud amongst the houses uh, because spice is worth a lot of money. Uh, it's like a drug. It also helps people like see into the future and then it also helps them with um, interstellar travel. It's like ayahuasca and fossil fuel. <laughs> but also like the well of life. Right. Yeah. Anyone who is huffed jet fuel knows what we're talking about. Yeah. I guess it's ayahuasca, fossil fuel, and penicillin? Is it the MacGuffin? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the all MacGuffin. Yeah. It kind of seems like uh, Leto and some of the um, generals of his house know they're walking into a trap, but they don't seem to prepare at all for this. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? plan they're just i mean just because they're a house known for good planning and preparation doesn't mean that they would know to do something about not getting killed in the obvious setup yeah they're supposed yeah. to be known for their leadership and strate strategic maneuvers strategery strategery yeah i did not see evidence of this nope <laughs> you guys know that old uh screenwriting Tradition, right? Tell, don't show. Right. Right. <laughs> they did neither. <laughs> Mention, don't anything else. Yeah, they just thought they'd have the music speak for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's strategic music. So, the House Harkonnen... Jack's plans, favorite character. <laughs> ...plans to take Arrakis back from House Atreides. They see it as theirs. They've held it for 80 years. So... And it's actually, this coup is backed by the Emperor. He gives two or three regiments of his Sardukar warriors to help House Harkonnen take back the planet. And you can tell that the Harkonnen and the Sardukar are baddies because they look really fucking cool. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> they dress like badasses. Dave Batista's one of them. Yeah. Like, all the qualities of being the best characters. Yeah. They wear a lot of skin-tight leather. It's a good look, Love especially it. on a desert planet. Yeah, it fits. Especially on a desert planet. <laughs> Swamp ass who? <laughs> it's just following the proud tradition of Mad Max. So after like what uh, something like a week, Leto and his household trying to settle in and uh, figure out the spice trade and like what equipment they've been left with, which is not a lot. Um, yeah, the. Harkonnen warriors and the Sardukar come back and just, like, bomb everybody. And, uh, Leto, the leader of House Atreides, the Duke, 
he is betrayed by his doctor. I hate it when that happens. Rude. Um, Dr. Yue, and he's taken prisoner. He meaning Leto. Yes, exactly. But sexy prisoner. Yes, because he's naked. And because he's Oscar Isaac. <laughs> yeah. Paul, Leto's son, and Lady Jessica, Paul's mother, and uh, Benny Jesuit escape because her grandmother, not her grandmother, but the grand lady who is the head of the Benny Jesuits, Gaius Helen Mohayim. I didn't make these names up, so don't blame me. I know Paul, <laughs> Jessica. I can't believe these bizarre fantasy sci-fi names. Yeah. So she was actually working through all these political maneuvers and helped the House Harkonnens take back Arrakis. But uh, she did ask for Paul and Jessica to be allowed to live. So we don't know why she's uh, betraying them except for politics. And uh, so Paul and his mom are being taken out into the desert and the Harkonnen warriors are just like, you know what? We should just you know what? We should just hurt them instead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were intending to abandon them in the desert so that they couldn't actually have any they traceable couldn't. way to confirm that they were, like, killed. Sorry, it's a real I'm-not-touching-you vibe. Yeah, they didn't <laughs> take Harkonnen, the Harkonnens didn't want to take responsibility. Yeah. It's a real little them. brother move. Yeah, because Gaius asked them not to hurt them, and they gave their word, so. They found a way around it. But Paul and his mother, Jessica, are able to use the voice, which is like a magical command the force of even. other people. Yeah. They're able to force people <laughs> to do what they want. If they find the right pitch, they, they can use mental domination through their voices. Mm -hmm. And um, they're not the worms you're looking for. It also lets them see the future. Paul is somebody who fits into a prophecy that was established by the Bene Gesserits. We're all somebody who fits into a prophecy. And they planted these ideas of a prophecy among the Fremen on Arrakis. And Paul kind of like has visions and can slip through time. And he feels like he was meant to be on Arrakis. He's had dreams of it most of his life. And he has a major Bar. sensitivity to spice and it's a psychoactive drug. And he's he's not quite allergic, but he's super sensitive to it. Um, so basically, Paul and his mother escape into the desert. They're helped by Duncan Idaho and Liet Kynes, and then taken in by the Fremen at the end, um, after Paul... Murders one of their number. Yeah, in a ritualized combat that proves that they're worthy to live among the Fremen. You know how it goes. You meet a new crew, you hang out for a little bit, you shank one of them in a knife fight, and then you're like a member of the family. Yeah. It's the age-old tradition, you killed my brother, now you're my brother. It's <laughs> Aww. The old Celtic way. <laughs> yes. And basically it all comes down to desert power. <laughs> That's the most important takeaway from the whole film. Yeah. Also, this is just the beginning. <laughs> true. It's true. Yes. But the movie's over. And so's the summary. So we should probably head into the delve. Nice. <laughs> so, 
Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Dune. Now, guys, I have a big question for you. We're a fantasy movie podcast, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. And we just watched Dune. Right. Is Dune a fantasy movie? No. (laughs) I argue yes. It is a fantasy movie, however, there are planets. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think there's usually planets in fantasy movies. Yeah, but there's usually one planet, not sure. multiple planets. But we did watch World of Warcraft, and there were multiple planets in World of Warcraft. True. So if you can say there are multiple planets in that, and there are multiple planets in this, then they're both fantasy. So you're saying that fantasy movies are movies with multiple planets. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that the only thing that makes this movie sci-fi is that there are multiple planets and travel between those planets. And it's in the future with different technology than what we know yeah but i think ultimately i know an argument that i've had a bunch of times about like what makes sci-fi sci-fi is like the idea or the concept of the sciencey thing yeah being relevant but it largely feels like the sciencey elements of this are kind of just like accent pieces sure um they're they're tools that allow people to exist and and maintain their wealth yeah <laughs> things like that yeah. what is a i was gonna say sweatsuit what is a still suit if not a magical uh buffer suit of armor or or like a an egg that you put into your throat that allows you to breathe underwater yeah but on a desert yeah not like the eggs that you put into your vagina we don't use those we are not <laughs> we are not shadow marketing gwyneth paltrow's company we are shadow yeah. banning <laughs> <laughs> but i'll grant you this about the still suits there are many ways to drink your pee in modern society <laughs> oh that God. are just accentuated by those suits i yeah. mean drinking your own pee in a still suit is how you make drinking your own pee socially acceptable that uh, that's fair Everyone's doing it. So I was thinking about it when when we were watching the movie, and I've considered it in between then and recording. And if you're like me and you go to a lot of bookstores, sci-fi and fantasy are usually even in the same section in a lot of bookstores. Like, there is such a overlap between the fans of these genres. So much sci-fi has fantastical elements. I mean, Star Wars is like the er example of a yeah. science fantasy, right? Yeah. That, that everyone understands, like space but magic. Yeah, or they have similar story structures. There's, depending on what type of science fiction you're reading, there could be like the hero's arc. I think the interesting thing about sci-fi is kind of like fantasy. It's one of the few genres where the genre is not necessarily defined by the plot structure. Right. It's defined more by kind of the aesthetics and like, you know, vibe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Whereas like, yeah, the thematic element. Yeah. Whereas like a, a drama, I think is specific in like, it's going to have like these dramatic elements and a romance is going to have love as it's driving force of the plot. And, uh, a a mystery or a horror is going to have this kind of like mystery build and like anticipation and anxiety feeling that you can have a sci-fi horror, a sci-fi right. romance, a sci-fi drama. You can have like sci-fi is more of like an adjective for other genres. Right, it's a modifier. Yeah. Yeah, it's a modifier. Yeah. And fantasy is kind of the same way because you can have all those things with fantasy as well. I think the big difference is like 
comparing this as sci-fi to like hard sci-fi where somebody's trying to really anticipate future technologies or possible yeah. technologies. Yeah, that's for sure. And another thing about fantasy is it typically goes in hand, uh, hand in hand with like the middle ages, like yes, medieval oftentimes. themes. And basically the entire plot of Dune is like a prophesied hero in space medieval times. Yeah. yeah. It basically yeah. feels like Game of Thrones in space. Game yeah. of Spice. Game of Spice. There's oh. also magical elements to it. There are prophecies. There are dreams and visions. And yeah. There's like, the voice. Mag- yeah, the voice. Magical abilities, yeah. basically, and magical powers. Through and- the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. yeah. There's people of different cultures. We don't have elves and orcs and dwarves, but we've got the Fremen, the, Har- the Harkonnen... House of Trades, who I guess are they called humans in this? I mean, I don't even know. I think all of those are humans, though. Uh, like sure. all, of, yeah. all of those different cultures are humans, but they're they're very distinct. Um, largely, I think, due to like what planets they're native to. Right. Yeah. Um, also, there's class struggle. Oh, I mean, that's how we knew that this was a fantasy film. Yeah. Right from the get go. True. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of class struggle in fantasy, and I, I guess, yeah, also sci-fi. Depending on, because I don't know if hard sci-fi has as much class struggle in it, but definitely. It certainly should, but I don't know if it does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably. I don't, I'm not really a big hard sci-fi guy. I love fantasy soft and science sci-fi. fantasy. Yeah, soft yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. Hard sci-fi, or just sci-fi in general, isn't always about class struggle. It tends mm-hmm. to be... Where it highlights something about our society that mm-hmm. might be wrong or potentially harmful and kind of puts it into stark relief. I think, though, the big thing about hard sci-fi a lot of times is that they are entertaining complex uh, science-based ideas. Right. It's like almost like hypothesizing through story form. Because yeah. it'll be like, what if we took a spaceship with a bunch of bombs on it and flew it into the sun. And then they're like, well, we're going to try to, you know, validate our narrative with, you know, the latest theories in quantum physics. Yeah. Um, which is cool, but it's not necessarily covering the same issues that fantasy covers. Right. And also, I mean, I think that I- I'm certainly not the first person to make this observation, but science technology and sci-fi and magic and fantasy usually kind of covers the same purposes and uses for creating like weapons and for making, you know, for changing the way people live their lives and like being used for just tons of different functions in the societies, whether it's a fantasy or a sci-fi story. It's interesting because sometimes whether something is, considered sci-fi or fantasy sometimes feels like it's largely dependent on if something is set in the past or the future right and sometimes when something is set in the future it still may have like all the makings of the past sort of like dune where we're getting this very like medieval type overall vibe but it's meant to be the future there's future technology it's more like advanced in in a lot of ways but like that that distinction feels largely arbitrary. 
And The Witcher takes place in the future, and that's clearly a fantasy. Yeah. Yes. I think this is, like, solidly kind of straddling both genres. It's science fantasy, for sure. So the long story short is we're allowed to talk about it on this show. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think we've covered that. So we've got that covered. We can move on to the next topic. So... Since we're just hopping right from one thing to the next, I don't think, like you're saying, we can go by without talking a little bit about House Harkonnen. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) That is their name. They're just so (laughs) beautiful. Yeah, Jack really had a lot of uh, love and appreciation for the whole aesthetic of House Harkonnen. When you think of attractive people, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably... Dave Batista. Yeah. That right off the bat, that's an example of a person. I was thinking adjectives like greasy. <laughs> right. <or> oily. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we get good shots. Dripping. Good shots of large uh, of, you know, beautiful hairless beings rising out of uh salt and uh, you know, oil and vinaigrette and dressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He is kind of like a crouton, you're right. Yeah. Everybody's always so wet and moist. That's right. Oh, you yeah. know what? They're just little garbanzo beans. <laughs> the setting of Guidi Prime largely feels like the weird kind of like non-place that you see in um, Under the Skin or yes. even right. Stranger Things. Yeah, like the upside down. Yeah, there's that like weird mental space that thirteen would go into, and the f- the ground is kind of like black and reflective, roiling and, and basically gooey. Just like the those like weird n- nether rooms. That's like Guidi Prime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very true. Their planet is, from what we've seen, fully mechanical, right? It seems like it. I didn't see a green thing in one spot. All the shots we see of it are dark and industrial. A lot of their decor is just like flat metal surfaces. They were born in the dark. They were. And they have like a very brutalist architecture style, which I thought was really neat because the brutalist architecture tends to look really like stark and oppressive, which is pretty representational of the Harkonnens, I it's think. It's like large concrete blocks in geometric shapes. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. At the very beginning of the film, the narration tells us that they are oppressing the Fremen on their home planet and that they are ruining the land, which I thought, well, you know... People who ruin the land are probably pretty villainous. They're coded as very villainous. And also... I don't like people who ruin the land. They're just sifting through sand. I'm not sure how much that ruins it. Hot take. (laughs) (laughs) I think they were trying to, like, hunt down the Fremen and eradicate them. That makes sense. They were basically trying to uh, exterminate the native people. They do like to kill... Everything. It's like their first resort. Yeah. (laughs) They're, so, they're largely at odds with the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't finish talking about them unless you bring up the spider. That's right. All I right. mean, and because you're, you're talking about how sexy they are. so It's true. Their leader is like <laughs> uh, shaped like Kirby. 
Yes. If he was gray, sometimes yeah. he is. They are. Kirby, and he floats around like Kirby also, and he eats like Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> He's just an evil Kirby. I would pay to have a recut of this movie where Stellan Sarsgaard is pink the whole film. Yeah. Or replaced with a gray Kirby. Yeah. I think it's interesting because um, in the books, we learn that the Harkonnens are bad because of all of the reasons that you've stated, but also that uh, the uh, leader played by Stellan Skarsgård, the Baron, he is like a, a rapist and a uh, a gay man. Um, oh. and so... I am glad that they removed some of these elements yeah. from the movie because I felt like gay, fat, rapist who, like, oppresses people, some of these things are not like the others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At like, least one of these things and possibly all of them no, do not. Yeah. To, well, I mean, and I think it's interesting because they did keep the fact that he's, like, fat and that he overeats and... I He's had a, a glutton. Yeah, I had a little bit of like difficulty with that idea because when I was reading about it and even when seeing it on TV, I don't like it when um, fat characters are coded as evil because they are fat. Right. Yeah. Um, because I think we all know that weight is a lot more complex and yeah. also fat people aren't evil inherently. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hot take, of, Casey. Yeah. It's kind of seen... It's coded as, like, a moral failing. Yes, a lot of times in films, that's exactly yeah. what happens. Yeah, I would say this character is sort of supposed to have, at least in the movie version, it, like, an excess yeah. right. in all of their behaviors. They they just overdo everything. Yeah. And it's meant to be in contrast with the Fremen who do not have access to all of the things that the Harkonnens have access to. Right. Because the Harkonnens have access to obscene amounts of wealth because of the spice, which means that they have access to a lot more like food and water. Um, and they use things very frivolously. So right. they yeah. use water and they use food very frivolously. And that is represented through... Um, his like obesity and the fact that like he doesn't even walk he has these like um jet propulsion yeah i don't know what to call them but they they they're like these kind of chains that oh, carry yeah. him around basically they're like they're like personal cranes yeah little like Spinal hovercraft yeah. hovercraft chains yeah. that like carry him around from room to room so he doesn't even have to walk and while I'm opposed to the idea that, like, fat equals bad, um, I do respect that kind of contrast that they're trying to show between him and the Fremen, where the Fremen don't have access to food and drink in the same way. Whoa. I just realized he could never attract a sandworm because he flies. <laughs> That's true. Genius. And, so, oh. Um, and that fits in with what you were talking about, Jack, where it's kind of like a medieval story, but just yeah. set yeah. in the future. Yeah. Because people at that time that were rich were overweight because they had... Could get overweight. They could... Well, that's what I was getting at. Like, they were, were capable of that. Nobody yeah. else really could. And it was um, a mark of beauty and wealth if you could get overweight because right. you had the resources to be able to do that. It was a sign of privilege at a time right. when food exactly. proteins were hard to come by. Yeah, And I also want to say 
Baron Harkonnen is portrayed as like a fat character, right? But all of the Harkonnen are just big. I mean, yeah. Dave Batista is like this super jacked dude, and they get him to be this warrior. Like the other warriors are just big, burly guys. The Fremen are, you know, like I guess maybe not malnourished, but like they don't have really easy access to food. Like they didn't get these giant jacked actors to show off their muscly, ripply bodies to play those characters. The Harkonnens are supposed to be warlike, powerful, and opulent in a lot of ways. So you get that visual language of just bigger actors with a lot more, like, skin showing and big muscles and everything. Yeah. That's right. And when they were asked to leave Arrakis, they were making... Just ludicrous amounts of money. The movie uh, describes it as being obscenely rich in the opening. Yeah. Which was a fascinating description by the Fremen. Even they're like, that's just too much money. (laughs) And uh, Well, the Fremen are are very oppressed people. That's right. And when House Atreides gets the planet, it's addressed that from the Harkonnen's point of view... House Atreides is going to be making what should be House Harkonnen income, right? Right. And that seems like it's only part of the issue. It seems more like the main issue is, oh, House Atreides is getting our money. I guess we gotta kill him, (laughs) right? Well, and also it's already kind of a setup. Yeah. But it's interesting you mentioned that because at the beginning of the film, Duke Leto is making a point of asking his advisors how much money it must have cost to send this kind of symbolic diplomatic envoy to their planet. To the inauguration. Right, right? yeah. There's like all of these representatives from like an intergalactic kind of uh, inaugurational ceremony with a whole bunch of people from all these different planets. Right. And it's like a symbolic passing of the torch that could have yeah. been, I, I think it's kind of like, this could have been done in a memo. Yeah. So he, yeah, yeah we're clearly saying like house of Trades doesn't have the access to this obscene wealth. He's like, did this the need Harkonnen to be have. a meeting? This could have been an email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like, how much money are you spending to make this yeah. meeting happen clearly, or to make the ceremony happen? He clearly thinks it's a waste of resources. So he, we already kind of get the sense that maybe, Lido's going to be a little more frugal. He might be, you know, coded as a more morally upstanding character because that's there's that weird juxtaposition, right, in a lot of Western cinema where people who are frugal are perceived as being good, but then there's also the idealization of like opulence and overspending. It's this weird tension that I think happens in a lot of, especially fantasy and sci-fi films and fiction in general. Well, speaking of all this stuff about the different houses and all the fighting amongst them and... And the money. Yeah. I think it's time to talk about class struggle. Oh, I love that idea. This movie is laden with class struggle. So the Harkonnens make it rain. 
on themselves. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're always so wet. <laughs> Perfect cinematic symbolism. Yes. If you were to lick one of them, you would taste beautiful wealth. <laughs> I'll die on that hill. And muscle milk. That's right. right. No milk in that. <laughs> That's true. So, no milk and muscle. Man. I think we can talk about uh, class struggle in this film through the lens of the prophecy, at least in part. So, the prophecy has to do with this idea of the one being born who um, can become a powerful scion and um, basically somebody who can manipulate time and space for the betterment of all or to create a better life. That's as much as we got. It was pretty vague. General movie prophecy stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> you've uh, seen one prophecy, you've seen yeah. them all. It's basically there is a chosen one, he will save the day for the people who need it. Yeah. <laughs> Get the magic thing, cast your seed onto the wind. <laughs> all that. Just like Ator. Yeah. Or Ator's father. <laughs> That's right. Um, See, this is a fantasy movie. So the part where class struggle kind of comes into play is this prophecy has been spread by the Bene Gesserits on different planets and specifically on Arrakis. They are trying to seed this prophecy so that when a male heir to their power structure is born and can fit into the prophecy... They want to be able to manipulate that political power. Basically, if any wealthy white man shows up, we can be like, ah, oh, maybe this is our guy. Yeah, I think it's interesting, the idea of prophecy in Dune, that there is no actual prophecy. There is basically, like, the people who come up with, like, prophecy headlines that they <laughs> yeah. and, like, share on different planets for they're, different things. It's prophecy propaganda. Yeah. They're, they're, hor <laughs> they're yeah. horoscopes with much higher stakes. Yeah. <laughs> and then if somebody, yeah. like, just so happens to fit the criteria, they're like, okay, let's, like, try to steer this in that direction. And use them, them for our benefit. Yeah, prophecy propaganda is such a great way to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because in the film, the Fremen believe in this prophecy. There's a religious element to it. They yes. think that there's a Messiah coming. Yeah. They're looking for the signs of this Messiah coming to liberate them as a people from the oppression that they've been under. I mean, in the beginning of the movie, one of the there's like a few quotes, and one of them that pops up, on the, in the dialogue is who will our next oppressors be? These are our people who are so used to being under the boot of powerful non-native people. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's class struggle and it's imperialism. Yeah. Like right. much it's more broadly. Yeah, yeah. Colonization. But you know, again, there's this religious overtone that this Messiah will come and liberate them. Right. Uh, lead a resistance movement. Yeah. For them. So the Fremen call the one Lisan al-Gaib, which translates in their tongue to voice of the outer world, which is basically like a messiah figure. Yeah. And it's interesting that they say voice because Paul can use what is called the voice. That's true. And I think it has to do with his power and language being a source of power. 
Writers love to make language a source of power. <laughs> it's like whoever's on the end, whoever understands the language that you're speaking, you can share knowledge with them, and it's kind of a way to keep secrets in this setting. The mother, uh, Lady Jessica, has her own form of sign language, hand signs that right. she uses to speak to people, and she can secretly send messages to people without others knowing what she's doing. Right. It's intended to be very subtle. She does it behind her back. She's a powerful person, so she's often at the head of the room. Yeah. So she can communicate subtle information right. to people. I'm like doing it over here. <laughs> meaningless shapes in my a, hands. Yeah, it's a good thing there's a video recordings that go with podcasts. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The visual exactly. element. Um, yeah, there, it, language in this story, in this in this world, is used to pass on secrets. But also to kind of, like, control people. Yeah, yeah. To, to have a source of power. I think it's over. interesting because, like... Desert power? The, <laughs> the Fremen are kind of... I mean... They are oppressed by the Harkonnens. They're oppressed basically by the intergalactic, uh, I don't know what to call it, but like kingdom, I guess. The empire. intergalactic empire. Yeah, empire um, because they don't actually participate in any meaningful way with the empire directly. They're not a part of that. But then also, like, the Bene Gesserit's creating these, like, prophecy propaganda things. It's yeah. like, a weird form of manipulation. And Definitely. I don't know. In my opinion, it is kind of like a form of oppression because right. they are kind of forcing their will onto a group of people who Controlling then, their religion. Yeah. And, 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 and incentivizing them to um, embrace a colonizer right. as their leader. Right. Which is, like immensely problematic but it's a useful form of propaganda true and it fits the Bene Gesserit's aim because they like to kind of manipulate all the different important houses and the empire from the shadows they're basically. kind of like the puppet masters pulling strings from yeah yeah in the witcher it's kind of like the mages yeah yeah <laughs> and these are these are mage-like people almost they don't have literal magical powers but the voice is kind of yeah one of those things i it's know basically magic i don't know if they say it in the movie at all but i know that in the books jessica is called a witch in a derogatory way yes like a lot <laughs> they did say it at least once in the movie okay yeah well while they are using their will to like change the flow of politics in the empire it's pretty darn clear to everyone that they only care about their plans. Right. People are certainly secondary to the Bene Gesserit if they are not a part of their group. Yeah, the um the Reverend Mother or whatever her name is is basically tells Paul if he had not met her standard, she was just going to murder him. Like she had a poison knife at his neck that would kill him in an instant if he didn't fall into line with her expectation of, of subservience to her, basically. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. The Bene Gesserit, part of their prophecy is that the white savior that they're going to produce yeah. is uh, going to be a man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great your... messaging there. Woof. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's just, it's hard to know where to start when it comes to the Bene Gesserit for me. Because they are so problematic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Paul seems to hardly know how to comport himself after he learns that he's 
part of this prophecy and he's just his whole life at all is just to manipulate some other group of people like his whole being well he's also very hurt by the fact that his mom would send him into this situation that could have been fatal to him yeah yeah and he learns that through an interaction with the leader of the Bene Gesserit that he was only born because his mom wanted to have the prophesied child for reasons we don't know yet. Right. Or that we're not communicated in the movie. So he's I mean, who doesn't want to bear the prof- the prophesied one? It's true, but from like his perspective or almost any outside perspective, he's basically a tool for her to get more power, right? And the whole her whole group. Yeah, and sure she loves him. Yeah. But like He's a tool, right? Yeah. Oh, he's a tool, all right. And the leader of the Bene Gesserit was saying, if you don't fit my standards, I'm going to kill you, yeah, right? because I can go find another prophecy to one. So he's literally just like an object to the group, right? Yeah, he's a means to an end. I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day, I'm still like, wow, life must suck to have, like, all the control in the world. And, like, he... He starts off immensely privileged. Yeah. And he's, I think, unaware of his privilege in the beginning. Yeah. Largely, and then yeah. I think this film is about him kind of going through puberty, like magical puberty in a way. Um, and also like reckoning, I think, a little bit with his privilege. Uh well, he has so much taken away from him in the film. He does. Um, but like Like basically his whole family or yeah. i mean his father and yeah i'm saying he starts the kingdom, film with yeah. it though and so like it is i i not to like um downgrade what he loses but i feel like he he's basically having his the security of his future handed to him on a silver platter yes yeah like in the most quintessential demonstration of like white male privilege literally someone has carved a path for him to take rise after losing everything yeah and i think that's like a really interesting uh tangible demonstration of something that happens in a very less tangible way in the real world at the same time he really does have a desire to not want to be manipulated by the Benny jesuits and not yeah. fit into their whole power scheme yeah. and Part of joining the Fremen, besides feeling like that's where he belongs because he's been dreaming about them his whole life, he has a desperate need to belong to something, Mm -hmm. and he wants to reject that path that was laid before him and is trying to resist it in the only way he really can. I mean, it's either that or die. (laughs) But I think... I think the interesting thing about Paul is that ultimately he sees his marriage with the Fremen as being a way to get revenge. I think he even says like in the movie that he wants to like overthrow the emperor. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end, he's talking about using the Fremen to take over the galaxy and overthrow the emperor. Or at least control Arrakis. Yeah. Which is, which but, has spice. Well, he definitely. <laughs> which is but kind he, of controlling like he a huge part of the finances. He definitely talks about like trying to go for the throne though. And yeah. like ha- yes. and 
And so it feels largely like, even though he may be like, oh, I'm looking for a people, he's looking for a people for desert power reasons. Yeah. It's true. Which is ironic, because only a few scenes earlier, when he's going through a series of visions of potential futures, he's he says, oh, a war in my name, right? Where he's horrified by these visions of a future where people are slaughtering each other mm-hmm. for his sake. Right. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, I don't want a war because of me and my father dying. And then a few scenes later, he's like, we're going to kill the emperor, yeah. bitch. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because the way that the narrative is presented to the Fremen is that someone is going to come and save you. Right. But the way that he is speaking about how he's going to use the Fremen is I am going to take revenge. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting kind of element that also is a part of the class struggle element. Yeah. Because, like, when we think about wars that were fought, you know, historically, you have, like, kings and queens that are sending people out who are fighting for what they think is their country, but more likely is just, like, the queen felt she was disrespected <laughs> in this moment, yeah. and therefore she will take, a, you know... She will over. send many yeah. of her citizens to die. Yeah. So it's, like, it is still his privilege because mm-hmm. he, at the end of the day, he is still a member of one of the major houses that mm-hmm. controls the galaxy. <laughs> and he has he has a right to a level of power that they do not. Right. And he intends to use that right to basically create a war in his name, which he- is exactly what he's terrified of doing. I don't yeah. Know, like, then don't fucking do it. Yeah, he can still fall back on that position that role he has and the fremen don't have that capability they don't and it's interesting because like you see this difference in class in terms of like access to you know resources and like food and water and stuff like that between like the (laughs) yeah the fremen and the harkonnens but then you also see this different difference in class when it comes to like privilege and power and position and like he's just trying to fight like a vengeance story to regain his throne and to regain power. Whereas Fremen are just fighting to like have the right to their fucking land. Yeah. Um, so it's, and yeah. to be able to live there without being persecuted. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's one what of those, a bold ambition. It's one of those things where like, it's like the better of two evils oppressors type thing. Right. You know? Yeah. Another part of that is, the idea of cyclical violence, which is in yes. so many things. Yeah. Uh, it appears in this when uh, Baron Harkonnen is talking to Oscar Isaac. Mm. And, uh, Daddy Leto. Yeah, that's right. Daddy Leto. <laughs> oh, Daddy. He He's like, oh, your family and mine have shed each other's blood for hundreds of years. Yeah. It's time to put it to an end. And then he, they try to kill each other right there. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, in Baron Harkonnen's mind, he's like, oh, I won. Now we're at peace with House Atreides because they're dead. Because <laughs> right? there is no House Atreides. Yeah, yeah. And then Paul's like, no, I got actually a whole other group of people involved in this that I'm going to get killed. You know, yeah. on one hand, it's like, oh, House Harkonnen is bad. They're the bad guys and we don't want them to win. But it's like, are you willing to continue the cycle of violence for mm-hmm. revenge? And Paul says, yes. Absolutely. I'm going to oppress these people. <laughs> Take them with me. Well, it's complicated, right? Because as much as we can read this as Paul using 
the people, the Fremen, to see a means to their own, to his own ends, the Fremen also believe in this prophecy and are willing to invest in kind of freeing themselves from their own oppression if they can pull it off. I mean, especially if yeah. if House of Trades is gone and Paul fits into their prophecy, they could easily see this as a way where they will get what they want in the end because Paul won't have a house left to like kind of counter oppress them after the fact, right? Like if he becomes a Fremen as much as he possibly can. They see this as a means to autonomy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the perfect way to manipulate them through this prophecy because it's part of their belief system and it's mm -hmm. something that gives them hope. Right. One but hope is also really important. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because when I was initially thinking about this, I really was only thinking about uh, the oppressors as being like the Harkonnens and the Atreides. But I do think that the Bene Gesserit are also involved oh, yes. in, in it as well. But I think it's interesting, too, because I feel like the movie tries to paint House Atreides as these like honorable yes, dictators right. that, you know, like. Benevolent. Sure, yeah, benevolent dictators. Like, yeah, sure, you know, like, the Harkonnens were bad guys, and they definitely tried to kill you and, like, take your land and, you know, do all this terrible shit, but the Atreides, they didn't, they didn't mean to, and they didn't want to come here, and they didn't want to do this, and, like, you know, they're not going to kill you, they're just going to, like, seek to use you as a way to further their agenda, and they're also, like, not going to stop doing spice production and yeah. they're going to promise not to invade your sieges so long as like they aren't told that they have to. It's going to be more humane slave labor. Yeah. It largely feels like the difference between, uh, conservatives and, uh, like neoliberal Democrats who are like, you know, we We've got, like, bombs, but they have, like, you know, gay pride flags on them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Everything's fine. We're the good guys. You know, listen, we're not going to kill you, but we are, like, I don't know, going to make it really hard for you to do anything that you want to do, and you still don't get to be autonomous. Right. And, and it, it is this weird thing where I think they are trying to portray Daddy Leto as, like, this good guy, especially because he shows that he's compassionate for his men he is, like, you know, trying to work with and connect with the Fremen yes. and willing to kind of negotiate with them rather than just rule over them. And um, cares about their safety. Yeah, and he's also, like, he cares about his son and he cares about Jessica. Like, they're making him out to be this, like, good guy. Um, but I think that the, the film overall doesn't seem to um, acknowledge as much as we are in this moment that all three of these groups, the Bene Gesserits, Harkonnens, and Atreides, are oppressors. Yeah. yeah. And to, ultimately, to the Fremen, all of them are no fucking good. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, they would much rather have none of these people yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed interesting that Daddy Leto's plan was working with the Fremen when, at the beginning of the film, they're described as dangerous and unreliable. <laughs> Well, that is like the usual rhetoric used to other people who you plan to subjugate in some way, but to justify it amongst your yeah. 
privileged in-group. Or to take something away from them. Usually both. <laughs> but right. he could also have been thinking like, oh, I'll civilize them. Yeah, that's yeah. also problematic. Super like, he problematic. might think like, oh, we'll be mutually beneficial to each other because I'll help provide for them. And they're like, listen, we already know how to live on this planet. Yeah. In fact, you'd be fucked without yeah. us, the Fremen. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, because I think we learn basically that these sieges exist underground yes. and that the Fremen know how to exist on the planet because they understand how to work within the limitations of the planet. Right. But when we see the castle that the Atreides move into, which I'm assuming was built by the Harkonnens, it is in this big stone facade that is on top of the planet. Yeah. And they right. have these giant windows that they have to close in the middle of the day to block out the sun. Because I feel like it's such a demonstration of people who are not from this planet, not understanding how to work with the planet, yeah. instead trying to, like, assert their dominance over the planet. Right, yeah, the siege are these underground. Exactly. And meanwhile, the the brutalist fortress is yeah. on the top of like yeah. a giant stone Showing mountain that on top of a cliff too yeah. they can conquer the planet and the people yeah yeah that's definitely true i'd like to talk a little bit more about paul and his relationship to the fremen also absolutely because okay. from the beginning of the film we establish he's been having dreams about them for yes a while, right? one in particular yeah. that's right zendaya looking over her shoulder Chani. Chani, even. Chani looking over her shoulder. Chani looking over Zendaya's shoulder. That's right. <laughs> I only saw one of them in the shot. You'll have to figure out which one it is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Paula's been having dreams about the Fremen. And they're dismissed by everybody he tells them to. He tells Duncan Idaho, a long descendant of Indiana Jones, about... <laughs> his dreams and it's quickly dismissed yeah. he's like dreams are dreams he's real like, that's, life that's a woo woo shit yeah yeah, exactly. yeah. don't get the realist yeah. i guess i'm just a weird kid then sure <laughs> and uh we get a couple shots of paul watching uh what do you call those visual audio books he's watching or whatever? oh yeah his vid books or whatever yeah he's trying to study up on arrakis he wants to understand the local culture and science and such. Ecology. Yeah, he actually seems enthusiastic and interested in the planet. It's interesting because in the books, he's actually being told by everybody around him all the things that he needs to do because they are trying to prepare him because they basically know that Daddy Leto's gonna die. Yeah. And they're like, you need to know, like, they, he's getting, like, a ton of, like, battle training. He's getting training in the voice. He's getting training about the planet. Because they're basically preparing him for his dad to die as soon as they get there. And we and we see all that in the film. Like we get those little yeah. moments of him training in each of those but things or learning. It feels more self motivated in the film, which yeah, I think is an interesting change. Yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> well, it's also a lot quicker to um have somebody autonomously picking up skills in uh the visual language yeah. of film. So yeah. that's right. I think it also gives him more volition and more interest in the yeah. Fremen too like ultimately regardless of its impact in terms of storytelling it makes Paul seem more intrigued about the Fremen rather than like oh I'm just doing this because right. someone told me to it's true and a lot of his interactions with the Fremen are more like them being fascinated with Paul 
and Paul just writing it off, which I think is a little strange considering they're trying to have them be intertwined. And especially when it comes to the visions that he has of the Fremen. I think a lot of what we get of Fremen culture is in Paul's visions. Yes. And not actually from the characters as much. And let me explain that. Because Paul is getting visions of a future in which he or someone else is being trained in the Fremen ways. Right? And which is so, how he which is part of how he fits into the prophecy. Yes. And it could be Paul or it could not be Paul. We don't see who the perspective character is in some of these visions. However, when they're explaining some of the ways of the desert in his visions, one of the quotes that really caught me off guard was a, uh, a what, what was his name? Jamie? Jamis. Jamis. <laughs> <laughs> we got a shot of Jamis explaining to the point of view character the meaning of life isn't a problem to solve, but something to experience. Right? Mm -hmm. Which is a neat thing for them to say, and it's like showing all these shots of the sand vibrating in the desert, and like, all these shots of nature, and they're talking about philosophy in reference to it. But that quote felt pretty cheap to me. And the reason yeah. is, is because this movie isn't about philosophy and meaning of life. <laughs> this is a politics movie and an action film, effectively, right? Sure. Even though there aren't a lot of fight scenes, I was just sort of like, you don't get to start saying deep shit and expect like you set that up for an hour and a half, <laughs> right? I mean, it could be also, though, there is, whether intentional or not, a lot of times people will like do this thing where they're like, ooh, the wisdom of Native people, there's a wise, which yes. isn't to say that Native people aren't wise, but I think there might be some of this like, oh, we have to make them sound wise. Um, or it's another form of othering in a lot yeah, of ways, too. Yeah, it is. Like, there's a way to other people by condemning them, but there's also a way to other people by, like, almost l raising them to this level of, of godliness or, yes. like... Putting them on a pedestal. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The more immersed, they're more immersed in nature and they're more immersed in spirituality. And there's supposed to be some sort of respectable honor to their culture. I yeah, think. I mean, there's a gross, noble, savage yeah. imagery exactly. that's going on in the mm -hmm. film. I mean, exactly. either way, like Casey was talking about, either way you go, you're not really... Like, respecting their humanity. Because you're not seeing them through them. You're seeing them through the eyes of the oppressors all of the time. Yeah. You're literally seeing them through the eyes of the oppressors when Paul is dreaming. And then you're, like, seeing them through the eyes of the oppressors because none of them, none of their characters really get much of a fucking speaking part till the <laughs> very end. Yeah. You know, like, we see a few people here and there, but not really, and Liet Kynes who is uh, the, I guess, like, person who helps onboard yes. new, new dukes to l new lands. She's like a go-between. Yeah, she identifies as somewhere between Fremen and, because she's not, she's not from Arrakis. Yeah. Um, but she has spent a lot of time with the Fremen, so she kind of identifies as, as a part of the Fremen, but she's still not, Fremen at the end of the day and I think it's interesting that like the only characters that we have seen that even get like adequate time on screen with speaking parts have not been like born on Arrakis Fremen people right. and that is 
a huge way of othering. And that is inherent to the book as much as it is this film. There's really no way around it unless they had decided to, like, actually... Write new characters? Well, I don't know. Make Chani, like, Chani's narrative happen in tandem. So we're seeing both of them interwoven instead of just seeing her as, like... A hot girl on the breeze. It's interesting that they're looking for the voice of the outer world because they're not given a voice of their own. Yeah. Oh, By boom. the fucking authors. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, it would be an interesting choice if the second movie kind of gives us Chani's perspective. Of My everything. guess is that it's not going to. Maybe. I mean, but it's but a possibility. I, she could, like, they could switch perspectives. Sometimes films do that. And it's yeah. usually really interesting if yeah. it's done right. Yeah, I, I would. They'll probably focus that. on Paul, but it'll probably focus on Paul. But... I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a big Spider-Man fan, but Zendaya is a much more prominent actor than Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I mean, that's I don't I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know where either of them came from. They just like both blew up at the same time, and I'm like, but, who are you? <laughs> but she's in the Spider-Man films. She's also in Euphoria, which has been real hot yeah. right now. Yeah, I don't know so. that. That's okay. I don't. I don't know Euphoria. It's a trans allegory. Probably. A, <laughs> I mean, there's. I don't know if it's an allegory so much as it is a a trans narrative. There's literally that, a that, trans that? character in it. I haven't seen it. Oh. You'll know Euphoria one day, Jamie. <laughs> we'll oh. see. But also, she's from Disney Channel's Shake It Up Chicago, oh, I a zany dance comedy for tweens. <laughs> and I most, I mostly know Timothy Chalamet from when I needed a portrait for an RPG character, and I typed uh, like "modern teenager" into oh my Google. God, that's so great! <laughs> he is modern teenager. <laughs> oh my God. We were making characters for basically a Stranger Things based. Uh, RPG called uh, Kids on Bikes. Kids on Bikes, and Jamie just like types in like teenage boy. <laughs> He's like, "This'll do." Yeah. <laughs> and then when Casey was like, "Oh, it's Timothy Chalamet," I'm like, "I don't know what that is." Yeah. <laughs> what? Say psych right now. <laughs> yeah, I was just sort of observing that. It's sort of like, oh, when humanity is at one with nature, then they're really good, right? The soul of their people is uh, morally intact. But the bigger the civilization gets, the more open you make yourself to corruption. Right. Right? Common theme in a lot of media. Yeah. It's interesting because this is a story, classically, that draws a lot of religious elements from the real world the people in power don't in this film at least seem to have much spirituality beyond the Mm. Bene Gesserit saying like oh we've got this prophecy we've got but like there doesn't seem to be a religious element to the Hark uh, the Harkonnen or the House Atreides so much as where the Fremen are these very spiritual people that they have prophecies and scripture and the sacred spice and the palm date trees the date palm trees yeah the spice is a sacred element to the fremen right and it's a commodity to be exploited to those in power and it is corrupt i mean it is a psychoactive drug Mm -hmm. and they're trying to use it to gain more resources gain more wealth and power you're saying um, it's being corrupted. 
Yes, it, that is a corrupt system, though, is what I'm saying. Because Arrakis could have been a paradise, they said. It, yeah. They were terraforming yeah. the planet and stopped during the process because spice was discovered. And, and those um, worms started kicking up spice. They, they there were terraforming these, it would get rid of the spice. Yeah, there there were these huge structures they built to bring up water from under the surface mm. and start. They had these plants they were going to start uh, cultures of, and yeah, it, the project was just abandoned uh, because they realized they could exploit this resource. And abandoned specifically by the oppressors. Yeah. Um. Which I think is, like, another point of, like, we could have nice things, but the oppressors won't let us. Yeah. Um, but I think also, so I recently went to the Oakland Museum of California. Yeah. Um, and I went through the section that is about, like, the history of California and more specifically the Bay Area, but includes a lot of just the, the West Coast in general. And the first section talks a lot about, like, the Native Americans and what they were like before, you know, the Europeans came. And it was interesting rewatching this film after having just been to that museum because the parallels are so strong there, obviously. I mean, yeah. these are Native people who understand the, uh, you know tightrope walk that you have to walk with the land in order to ensure you get everything you need without taking too much but also that like level of respect that the Fremen have for the things that they uh, use like yeah. if um, if they kill someone they consume their their life water basically right. Right. and that's not an irreverent thing to do that's actually considered like a really respectful thing to do yeah um and as a way to show respect they will like excrete water um which is like uh, spitting spitting or crying um peeing your pants yeah <laughs> the greatest honor you can give someone is to pee your pants yeah but they're definitely, they have like a reverence for the worms. They consider, I think, that Shai Hulud, I think yeah. is the name yeah. that they have for the worms. And whereas like, you know, the outsiders view the worms as like these like awful, murderous monsters. Um, you get the sense. And they are. <laughs> they, you get the sense that the Fremen understand that they are both powerful, but also like a source of, um, I guess the spice, right? Like, yeah. Um, that was and, the impression I got. And yeah. cool daggers they use. Yeah. Yes. They, I, the it looks like knives. they take their teeth or something yeah. and, and they fashion them into knives. So they see them as kind of these like things to be respected. Right. And I really like the way that they have that kind of discrepancy between the oppressors and the Fremen. Um, but yeah, it feels really, really related to that, uh, the Native American narrative and how they had that sort of relationship with nature. And then the colonizers came and were just like, take it all. We want the gold. Give yeah. us the gold. You know? Yeah. There's this weird, like, idealization of it while also exploiting it in really selfish and, like, uneducated ways yeah. where they were people who might see a spiritual practice that they don't understand and ascribe values to it that people within the culture practicing yeah. that 
aren't going to feel the same way yeah. or will have completely separate meanings for. I get what you're saying. It's kind of the, like, there's a difference between someone understanding their surroundings and being moderate because of that versus someone looking at them and being like, wow, they're so wise and yeah. sacred and, and they're like no like we just have to do this to survive like, yeah this is just how we live <laughs> this is how you have to be another interesting thing that related to my experience at the museum was that um so the the atreides the house atreides are given the planet which is not theirs yeah. by the king and it's not his planet or the emperor it's not his planet so basically like one guy who's not from this planet gave another guy who's not from this planet the right to rule that planet. Right. And then took that away and then gave it to another guy. Exactly. And it's so, like, so much like I was re or reading in the museum where apparently, like, some guy from England just told, I think it's Sir Francis Drake, like, oh, you can just go have this chunk of land. Right. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's not fucking yours. They tried to claim it even though... There was already people living there. Yeah. They're like, it has to be ours to give and take. We're white. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. I'm here uh, a messenger of God. <laughs> right. Bring us home, Jack. I think the next thing I wanted to talk about was the duel. Between mm. Paul and Jameis? Yes, between Paul and Jameis. You yes. know, that's the end, but also the beginning. Yes. Yeah. It's an important moment. <laughs> I'd like to sort of frame it. By looking at the thousands of people who were killed earlier in the film. Yes. yes. When House the meaningless lives that were lost that there is no gravity or weight to. Pretty much exactly right. <laughs> they don't matter. And I'll die on that hill. Because we <laughs> haven't, they sure did. We haven't been told that they matter. Yeah, in the story. Yeah. They, they aren't given... Any like emotional? We're we're not getting given any emotional cues except for the family specifically. We aren't even shown why people in House Atreides like it so much. Right, right. We've only seen the royal family mm -hmm. and the people they work with. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to actually like House Atreides yeah. except for liking the family of House Atreides, right? And. We have no ideas as to why a soldier of House Atreides might want to defend them, except for uh, my grandpa was killed by a conflict with House Harkonnen, right? Yeah. Or they, no, I, I can tell you why they're loyal, because their duke is Oscar Isaac. I mean, yeah. It actually, <laughs> basically, it's like, because Daddy Leto is an honorable man, and he inspires a sense of loyalty yeah. in his constituents. Um, but it is an interesting thing to point out that, like, this war has been going on for a very years? fucking long time. Or longer generations, because yeah. they say they're, they've been fighting for generations. And I yeah. wonder if that either bolsters their loyalty, because now people feel like they're a part of it, because they've probably lost family members right. yeah. in this war. Yeah. Um, or deters their loyalty, because they're like, why are we fighting in but this the, But the audience is not privy to those no, bits of knowledge, and I think not, that's Jack's yeah, point. Yeah, it is not obvious. That is largely uh, conjecture happening in this room. Right. It's yeah. true. That's giving it a lot more emotional gravity than the film gave it, right? Exactly. We see at least hundreds of deaths on oh, screen yeah. that uh, 
make you feel almost nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we get to the end Ooh, of the Ooh, fireworks. Film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Basically, it's like, wow, that CGI looks crazy. <laughs> Love watching that building full of people blow up. The spiral missiles? Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whoa, all those people are dying, but Jason Momoa is going to get away in his thopter. <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to the end of the film, and Paul has to duel Jameis. One-on-one combat. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the shields. Ot- uh, sorry. The Umtal. That's right, Makara. fight. <laughs> yes. Well, I think this isn't Makara because he's not fighting him to overthrow him, right? In a way, he is, but he doesn't know that. He's kind he's, of taking his place. He will be taking his place. He's fighting him to show that they have the right to be there. Yeah. And uh, Jameis will only be convinced if he dies from this interaction. <laughs> That's what he says. They're trying to convince Jameis, and if... Like, they, we can just talk about this. If no. they prove it, then they don't have to convince Jameis. I think yeah. it's also that you have to. It is kind of like Makara in that, like, you have to fight to the death. There is no I concede. Um, probably because they want to discourage fighting because it is a waste of energy and resources. So and if water. you are going to fight, you need to fight to the death. Otherwise, don't fucking do it, which yeah, I think it, is an interesting tactic. Yeah, you're right. It could be like a deterrent. Yeah. That's true. And both characters have been established in the movie so far. Paul, we followed the entire time. And Jameis, Paul has been having visions of Jameis. Right. Mm-hmm. So we know he's important. Yeah, he's the one who's been saying the meaning of life and things like that. And, oh, the desert teaches us many things and stuff like that. So. We are getting the Fremen looks at spirituality and philosophy through Jameis in Paul's visions. And now they're going to try to kill each other, right? And there's also a vision that Paul has of Jameis killing him. That's right. And when it says, when you take a life, you take your own, right? Like a part of you dies with them. Exactly. Which raises the stakes because, uh, you know, we probably don't want Paul to die. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> More puberty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> More coming of age. It's true. And so this one-on-one fight has a ton of emotional gravity. Because also the mom points out, oh yeah, Paul's never killed anyone. And yeah. personally, I'm like, oh, I don't want him to start. That's not a <laughs> yeah. good act. How can he possibly be a man? He hasn't committed an atrocious act of violence yet. He <laughs> keeps asking in that fight, do you concede or something like that? Yeah. Do you, he, do you give he up, doesn't want to kill Jameis. Because yeah. he doesn't want to kill him. He keeps like almost getting all these killing blows over and over again. Which is funny because in the book, and I don't know if it's really conveyed in the movie, but in the book they talk about how that's like really rude. Like him doing <laughs> that over rude. and over and over again is really rude. They're like, is he toying with him? What the fuck? Yeah, they were communicating that part in the movie, like is he toying with him? And they were trying to show how wrong it was by how angry Jameis was getting. Yeah. That like he was dishonoring him. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where Paul was trying to be merciful, he was being very insulting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is something that happens with cultural differences sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I appreciate the, like, acknowledgement multiple times throughout the film of how uh, cultural differences can be, like, misconstrued 
Yeah. Right. Um, I, I mean, think it, I think the world building in Dune is really interesting and feels really flushed out. Um, they do a lot of stuff that I was like, oh, I never would have thought of that. That's like a neat, like the idea of like spitting is considered yeah. like a gift. Sharing a your gift. water. Yeah. On our world, that's considered sexy. <laughs> okay. It's, it's like a sign of respect. Yeah. 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 Sexy. That's right. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was so interesting that in the final combat, like I wanted Paul to win, but not by the rules he was given. <laughs> yeah. You wanted Paul to have an out that wasn't homicide. Yeah. And we didn't get it. And he wins, but in a way that make I don't know if I felt comfortable celebrating. It seems yeah. like a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, exactly. In some ways. I mean, I guess he gets to live and live out his prophecy, or at least continue down the road of his prophecy. But, like, what a prize, huh? This is yeah. and this is meant to be very much like a pure victory. It is meant to be like, yeah, he's succeeding and he's navigating his way through the Fremen traditions and through Arrakis, but he is losing a lot of who he was. Yes. Uh at the same time. Yeah. He's killed a part of himself. Yeah. And uh I just thought it was really neat the way they made the they made the stakes so much higher for the audience when it was just a one-on-one fight yeah. versus hundreds and thousands. That is an interesting reflection of real-world mm-hmm. atrocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, I mean, there's the famous quote that a death is a tragedy and a thousand deaths is a statistic, right? Yeah. The Isn't death of like one Stalin? is a tragedy. Pretty sure that was Marilyn Manson. No, just <laughs> oh, he boy. does actually saying the death of one is uh, is a tragedy. Sure. The death of a million is just a statistic. He sings a lot of uh, quotes that he probably doesn't understand the meaning of. I think he understood <laughs> it. I definitely think he understood it. But the it, sig- it I should say the significance his. of. <laughs> it wasn't his quote. Possibly the irony of. Um, either way, um, no. I mean, this is something that happens with new stories and the portrayal this all i think goes back to what is called the big man theory of history where you prop up individuals at the expense of the collective Mm -hmm. right yeah because it's it's much easier if you have a single name or a handful of names and i mean we attribute the same thing of like the general who won the war right it's like what about all the soldiers who won the battle or whatever like that and that's what's happening here. It's much easier to understand Paul and his motivation and Jameis's motivation versus caring about this faceless, nameless horde of House Atreides guys with swords getting blasted by the spiral nukes. And there's so many faceless, nameless, because there's also the Sardaukar, which have yeah. helmets on. And, like, the Harkonnens. Like, everybody is wearing helmets, and they do that on purpose. Well, a lot of the Harkonnens have those nice, shiny, bald heads. Well, but I, I don't mean the leaders. Like I mean the Harkonnen fighters. Yeah. The Harkonnen fighters, the Sardaukar fighters, and honestly, I don't even remember seeing an Atreides fighter. There probably were some, but, like, they deliberately yeah, a took a, a lot of the fighters and put helmets on them as a way to kind of be, like, okay, they're gonna die, but you're not gonna feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. Cinematic shorthand is weird. Yeah. It's one of those, um, it's a a palatable massacre. (laughs) Well said. We've coined a lot of terms in this episode. Yeah. 
prophecy propaganda. Yeah. Uh, palatable massacre. Whew. Yeah. Guys, I think we could probably talk about this movie until we make it to Arrakis, but we should probably move in to the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Casey, as our guest and the one who selected this movie, would you like to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 Chris Knives? Ooh. Ooh. We revere the great worm, so we take their teeth and we stab each other with it. Sounds like fun to me. (laughs) Yeah. That's how you show respect. Yes. The epic moment is hard because the things that I liked the most about this movie were the set design. And oh. so it's less like the moment well, and more of the vibe. Um, yeah. I really loved the uh, costuming and the sets for all of the houses and how they made them distinct um, and how they kind of blended this like science fiction-y type element with uh real world elements so you have kind of uh i don't know weird still suits but then like also there look to be um garments that look like they were from the middle east yes um yeah and it's like they have this advanced technology but their structures look like they might have been constructed in ancient history yeah so i like that kind of blending of aesthetics um and i think that was the thing that really made this movie enjoyable for me um the first time i saw it i actually straight up just did not like it really i I, yeah um i thought that the movie was a little light in terms of what i wanted i wanted more character development and i i thought that i really wanted to see more of a transformation with paul from his before his dad dies to after his dad dies um and I felt like he was kind of a dour, wet blanket most of the time. Yeah. Um, You're not wrong. Yeah. And I think that's also just like the way Timothy Chalamet's face looks. Like he just kind of looks like a mopey emo boy all the time. It could have been like a way he was directed to be. Yeah. I, I thought about that too. And I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily think it's a remark on his acting as much as it is a remark on the potential direction. It's so any young mopey teen can really see themselves in Paul. Yeah. It's self insert Paul. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after watching this movie with you guys, I think I've developed a little bit more of an appreciation. I think also coming from having read the book and I actually didn't like the book. Either. <laughs> um, but I like a lot of the things about the book, and I like a lot of the things about the world. So coming from the yeah. book and then watching the movie, I think I had some expectations that I, on second viewing, I think I was able to kind of like distill or or do away with even, um, and just enjoy some of the cinematic universe. Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm, it's still not like an ama- I'm gonna give it like a five or a six Chris Knives. Oh, I'm gonna say five Chris Knives. Okay. Which is still low because I think ultimately the best part of this movie is the aesthetics and not necessarily the story. Um, totally legit. But I do think the aesthetics were really cool and I have a lot more of a, an appreciation for this movie now. I- I'm glad I'm just now finding out that you felt that way because you 
asked us to do this movie. So I'm like, yeah. oh, a movie you didn't like, you wanted to talk about. Okay, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I, just, I really enjoy the world. I love sure. fantasy yeah. and I really enjoy fantasy worlds. And this world has so much yeah. in it. And it's so intriguing. I do wish the story was told a little bit better sometimes, but it's still really fun to engage in and talk about. Yeah. And there's so much there. <laughs> yeah, when you have a good world, I mean, it can make yeah. a, a story that you don't care that much about a lot more appealing. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Chelsea? You want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 Chris Knives? I do. My epic feature um, are the dreams and visions that Paul has. I think they're really cool. I like seeing that aspect of a character's inner life um it's something that is often overlooked in stories and i like how it's highlighted here and how it shows that they can be misleading and that it's often something that is communicated through metaphors for example uh, with Jameis, he he has visions of Jameis. paul does ahead of time and in those visions Jameis is taking on more of like an uncle role or a fatherly role and kind of taking seems like they're taking the perspective character which I assumed was Paul under their wing like and telling him he's going to teach him the ways of the desert and it does feel very fatherly yeah kind of more like a mentor and uh protective and then when he meets him, he's actually confronting him and wants to fight him to the death. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, not fatherly at all. It was a metaphor for... Or is it? His actions will teach Paul the ways of the Fremen people. And they're kind of like one with the desert. So uh, he's kind of teaching them their ways through his actions and words. This is one instance where watching this movie again with you guys made me appreciate it more than I did the first time because I didn't pick up on that. And when you had mentioned that, I was like, oh, shit, that's actually kind of smart. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think it's it's just really neat to see how like you have to be crafty when you're interpreting your visions. You can't always take mm -hmm. them at face value or your yeah. dreams. And so um, it's like it can give you information, but it's kind of like the prophecy. You can't totally trust it. Yes. It's not so trite as a lot of movies with prophecy where either a prophecy is a literal vision of the future or you just get the opposite. Like in this story, you get a much more subtle interweaving of how prophetic vision is interpreted. Right. And um, so I'm going to give this movie 8 out of 10 Chris Knives. It's not perfect or anything, but I really love the aesthetics like Casey was talking about. I like the world. I think it's an interesting look at prophecy. It, it, they handle it in a different way than we've seen in other fantasy movies, so it gets some points for me for that. And... Yeah, I'd like to see if we can move away from the noble savage trope in the second movie, though. <laughs> that would be nice. Ooh, and hopefully I kinda the white it. savior. Yeah, thing as exactly, well. exactly. But yeah, so that's my rating. Very nice. All right, Jack, are you ready to tell us your epic moment or feature? 
and then give her the rating from 1 to 10 Chris Knives? Yeah, I think I am. Nice. My epic feature has got to be House Harkonnen. Okay. Obviously. How unexpected. They're so beautiful. I'm going to hone in specifically on the bath scene. Okay. Yeah, I loved it. Baron Harkonnen, uh, in his brilliance, uh, of <laughs> majesty, <laughs> weaker foes would seek to destroy him. And so they try to poison him. And so uh, he needs time to uh, marinate yeah. as he heals. <laughs> and so there's just a great scene where Batista enters the ring, uh, the stage, the set. and I hope he doesn't botch his entrance like he did at WrestleMania that year. Oh, oh cringe. Uh, there are these, like, bald musicians in, like, sort of hazmat suit-looking things, and they have these finger gloves, and they're tapping on those little, like, hissing snake magnets kids play with. It's playing all this crazy electronic ambient tones. It's like healing him through sonic yeah, power. Yeah, sound yeah. healing, right? And then uh, Batista just approaches the olive oil and vinegar tub like we were talking <laughs> about. And then Lord Baron Harkonnen like bubbles out of it and is like rubbing his like hands over his face and is just like, how was the excursion? Right? And it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's just like, oh, it's not going well. Uh, well, except it is actually going well. We killed them all. And the mom and the son drove him into a uh, into a sandstorm. They're definitely daddy. And Baron Harkon is like, they're not dead. Go this is a em. movie. There's no way they're dead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's actually like, without a doubt, they're dead. They're definitely, without a doubt, not dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> Go get them, boys. And then he sinks back into his soup. Yeah. And that, that scene just makes me so happy. Everything about it is delicious. Yeah, it does seem like he's really loving that oil vinegar bath. Yeah, it's true. If you I ever, mean, I enjoy a good bath, too, so I don't blame him. If you ever want to, like, experience that scene on your own terms, at, like, your family Thanksgiving, just put your hand into the gravy bowl and, like, <laughs> stick some of your fingers out from the surface. Oh like a finger puppet and just, uh, find the boy, right? Something like that. <laughs> I think we have a new Thanksgiving uh, tradition now. That's right. Thank you. Just make sure you film it so you can share it on our social media. That's right. <laughs> Swords and Satire Gravy Bowl Challenge? Yeah. Oh my god. Weaker foes will try to stop you, but film it quickly so they can't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can't stop me, Grandma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's pretty epic. <laughs> What's your rating? Uh... I'll tell you what, my rating was a lot higher when I first saw this movie. I was swept up in the spectacle of it, and I think that's, that's fair. That's this movie's strongest point, like yes. you were saying, Casey. It's a spectacle. Yeah. But, like a lot of films, I think it's more enjoyable if you don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is a scathing indictment of the film industry. Oh, God. <laughs> If I watched Disney's A Wrinkle in Time as, like, a seven-year-old, I would feel so much better about it. Yeah. Um, and, but this movie is pretty brilliant to watch. It's just unfortunate to think about. I'm on the edge of my seat. Like, what is the number gonna be? <laughs> I'm probably gonna give this movie 
a five out of ten. Wow. Oh wow. Same with me. Yeah. Five. I think. Is this I'm the first time you guys have ever aligned in a rating? Probably. It Maybe. might be. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'll have to go. I'll, I'll go back through the database. Yeah. <laughs> I'm typically pretty generous with my ratings. I think. So far, we're averaging a six. So we'll see if Jamie will bring it up or down. Yeah. But uh, when it comes time to this tell. movie, uh, again, just don't think about it if you can. And you've already listened this far, so it's too late for you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> just real. for a podcast that spends hours thinking about a it's movie. It's true. It's true. <laughs> well, that's a good. That's a fair rating, Jack, based on your explanation. Yeah. Well, there it is. And I enjoy this movie. It won't be the last time I've seen it. I'm just disappointed in everything it represents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I ended up buying it. Because it was so much, it was so close to the difference in renting it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, since you bought it, you might as well tell us uh, an epic moment or feature in rating out of 10 worm teeth daggers. I think I will. I think I will. My epic feature is the fucking music. Yeah. Now, in a similar vein to Jack, when I first saw this movie, it was in the theater. And that is where I have to say the soundtrack shines. Being in a room that is made for acoustics had a huge difference for me in enjoying the aural aspects of this film. It is like this amazing discordant and harmonic like assault, the soundtrack. I When I first saw it in the theater, I compared it to like Basically a heavy metal orchestral, like, ambient drone. It was so present and in my mind. And a lot of times in films, I don't necessarily think about the soundtrack while I'm watching it. I kind of let everything wash over me. In my first watch in the theater of this film, I was hyper aware of the music at all times, and I loved it. It does kind of surround you. Yes. And totally envelop you and... Shape your whole experience. <laughs> As a metalhead, I thought that this was a new high for film score. It just completely blew me away. And then, unfortunately, watching it at home with our shitty TV <laughs> speakers, like, I was not aware of the soundtrack at all. And it, and the movie lost so much of its punch. And I was kind of disappointed. And, you know, honestly, I think that that speaks to my feelings about this movie more broadly. It is a spectacle. It is a movie that should be seen in a theater. And I think that's what it was designed to be. It is designed to be a film that is enjoyed in like the classic theater experience, big screen, big moments, loud soundtrack that just envelops you in the room. You experience it with other people and kind of get that residual energy from everyone. And then much like the film Avatar, as I stepped away from it and got out of the theater and rewatched it, my level of being impressed was significantly reduced. Yeah. It's not a bad movie at all. Um, I don't have any knowledge of Dune besides the little bit I've gotten from cultural osmosis before this. So I didn't go into it with many preconceptions. I've never even seen the David Lynch movie. So I don't have a lot of established appreciation for these characters or anything. 
I thought it was an impressive bit of filmmaking from a, a like Casey's pointing out the set designs and the costumes and everything are really evocative and very cool. But again, seeing it on a small screen loses a lot of that impact because everything is kind of in the background and you can see the background much better on a large screen. And I don't know how deep the story is. It, there are other movies that are giant spectacles like Mad Max Fury Road that I can still watch on my TV and be like, this is still great. This is still like expert filmmaking with interesting visual language and it still looks and sounds really good even outside of a theater. And this movie just doesn't have that for me personally, at least. So I think with all of that in mind, I'm going to give it seven out of 10 Chris Knives because it was an impressive collective effort and I really appreciate the vision of all the people who put this movie together I would say I probably would have given it a 9 walking out of the theater the first oh, time yeah. nice just because I was so overwhelmed by it alright guys well I think that'll pretty much do it for us here at Swords and Satire as always if you enjoyed the show you should probably follow us on social media to keep up with us at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can check out our memes, keep up with the movies we're watching, and it's a great way to get in touch with us. Yeah, and like we said before, if you'd like to be a supporter of the show and you have the means, you can head over to patreon.com slash swordsandsatire and join our patron community. You'll be a cool kid like Casey. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you'll get cool perks like outtakes episodes or rewriting history or movie pitch episodes you can also vote on a movie that we watch each month and the day this episode comes out um saturday march 5th uh we have a new poll dropping so if you head over there you have a chance to cast your vote if you become a patron hey chelsea what movies are on that poll i can tell you it's gonna be a Selection of science fantasy movies. So we have Krull. Classic. Valerian. Wow. Oh my god. It's the wild card. Uh, Jupiter Ascending. Sweet Christ, what are we doing? Hubba hubba. <laughs> we just want to torture ourselves. And then Annihilation. Ooh, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> it could be Oscar Isaac month. Yeah, Ooh, it could. You know it what? Could. I was kind of figuring we might be accidentally seeding this one. <laughs> <laughs> Is he in? Yes. Annihilation. He's in Annihilation. Really? Yeah. He's also in Annihilation. Oh. Yeah. So, um, and that actually means something. You'll know when you see the movie. If you want to hear us talk about any one of those movies in particular, you should head on over there and become a patron. And you know, the best way you can get your movie selected is to get another friend to sign up for our Patreon and have them vote for the same movie that you want to watch. That's true. <laughs> That's a good one. It's true. In fact, that reminds me of another great way to support the show. If you don't have a few extra Solari oh. to slide toward your favorite podcasters, it's always helpful for you to share the show with your friends and your family. If you watch the movies and shows that we watch, you can all listen to our episodes together. How, how much fun would that be? So Sit much in a fun. room and just listen. 
It's like the old days when the radio was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think the radio is still a thing. No, this it was, is the radio it, now. It's true, yeah. Guys, podcasts are kind of like the modern radio shows. Yeah. And in conclusion, the best way to expand the Swords and Satire family is to expand the Swords and Satire family. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. Thanks, patrons. Just like the prophecy said. Flawless. Casey, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been great. I feel like we get you every other week, and now we're getting you every week on the show. Yeah. Because we've also been talking about The Witcher with you. I know, it's so great. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah. And Chelsea, what are we going to be talking about next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about another episode of The Witcher, Season 2, Episode 6, titled Dear Friend. Just like all of you guys are to me. Yeah. All right, well, until then, Hail Hail Crom! Crom!